0: and ends a family incestuous family tree Avril's off with CD, while Oren wants the bleak Mario don't know he's fucked James went off and he stuck his head in a microwave Cartridges inside his grave Johnny Gentle wants it clean engineering new machines Americans should join up with Mexicans and Canucks ONA and run the show Quebecois threatened to go New England fresh to the brim Giant fans North Northwood win He didn't stop it was always electric and a little noxious, we didn't the pile, of the six-eyed babies in the cocky babies, down at Boston
1: eight Hello, hello everybody, happy Monday, welcome to the I Hate Infinite Jess Podcast, part 18, pages 503 to 530. Yep, we're still going, we're past the halfway point, trucking along. Uh, We have a very exciting guest this week. I was very excited to have him. Josh Gondelman. Josh Gondelman is a comedian. I mentioned this on the podcast. Uh, He was the first result to come up when I typed in Infinite Jest comedian, which he uh, seemed a little embarrassed about. He did an interview a few years ago with Lit Hub. But yeah, so Josh Gondelman is a comedian and he's a writer. You can find him at Josh Gondelman. That is Josh G-O-N-D. E-L-M-A-N on Twitter and Instagram. He is a comedian and a writer. He is currently one of the writers for Dezus and Marrow. Uh, they're going to be coming back for season two on Showtime Sundays and Thursdays at 11 o'clock. So check out his work there. He has his own podcast called Make My Day, which is a one-on-one game show every week. A lot of fun. He also has a book coming out, a collection of essays called Nice Try. So go check out Josh Gondelman. I'm could not be happier that he chose to join us on this podcast we got we got deep into some stuff here uh we talked a lot about the perspective of characters depending on where we are in the book uh this is our first he our first guest he actually grew up in boston so i asked him how that correlated based on what he actually knew about the city itself the setting of the book how that rang true to him or not we got a lot into we talked about depression quite a bit and just how uh how DFW articulated depression that's not only articulated, but de- I guess destigmatized in a way for people who suffered and also for the benefit of people who do not suffer from depression and what they could get out of it. So that's, I, I don't have a, any songs this week. Sorry guys, it hits me sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. I'm going to really try hard to write about that next week. I'm going to try to come up with a song, but yeah, enough of my yakking. epic Episode 18, pages 503 to 530 with Josh Gondelman. It's a good one. Check it out. Check out all his stuff. See you guys. Hey guys, one last thing I forgot. Follow me on all the things at Jesse Dram on Twitter and Instagram at Jesse Dram on Facebook. Reddit at Diamond Joe Quim. Not trying to be dirty, just ran out of character. Uh also in a very weird twist, I am now writing a wrestling blog for SteelRingPost.com. That'll be up every Thursday where I'll be doing the Pops and Botches, reviewing the AEW Dynamite every week. So, yeah, I am now, uh... I, I am now running a podcast dedicated to Infinite Jest, the highest of the highbrow, while writing about professional wrestling, the lowest of the lowbrow. What the... How the fuck am I ever gonna make a career out of this? I don't know. Tune in. Find out if you somehow also follow both of these things and are a fucking weirdo.
0: Alright, let's get back to the show. in the concavities. Down at Boston, AA. Crocodiles got their say. Rat-care dirty mask, a pillicle is still attached. Gately sits, stands and listens. Gag the man with the sniffles one day at a time. Toothbrush fucking his behind. Of his butt. they girl in recovery. PGO 18. Liar licks a drop of sweat, flip a tick back to his head. how don't know just what to do. His little watching smoker do. THC, No don't take the DMC. Hey, here we are. It's
1: I today. Part eighteen. Well past that a halfway point. We're on pages five oh three to five thirty. Our guest this week, uh comedian, writer extraordinaire, Josh Gondelman. How you doing, Josh? Okay, thanks.
2: Um, it's my weekend, so I I got up this morning and I did my rereading of the pages we're going to talk about, and I, I feel good about it.
1: All right, nice. Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, as I was just saying a moment ago, I actually originally found you just because I was looking for comedians who were in, in Infinite Jest, and you were the first one that popped up in an article where you talked about it in depth.
2: Truly humiliating. Uh, a really <laughs> humiliating thing, which is, I don't mean that in- I I love the book, but I also am like, oh, what a funny... To be the first person associated with that is so funny to me. Like, it just makes me feel very pretentious.
1: Well, it's... uh, That's the whole reason we have the podcast is... I I feel like this is a book, it gets... It gets a little bit of a bad rap and in some ways it's kind of deserved that by the way, let me just, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this. I started this podcast after arguing with people for a while because I tried to read it about 10 years ago and I think like I got to page 400 and eventually I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. But after arguing with enough people like, no, you need to really give it a try. It's like, okay, you know what? I want to do this and I'm going to bring you on and you are going to have to justify this to me. Okay. So here's what I would say to that.
2: I would say if you got 400 pages in and weren't feeling it, Mm. don't finish it. That's like for real. And I just mean like, there's no valor, I think, Mm. in like doing it, doing a thing that you don't like just because other people think it's good Mm -hmm. um but that said i do love the book and if people are like on the fence about it like this is what i think the thing that makes me feel pretentious is i do think the book is not as bad as the reputation its fans have, if that makes sense. So it's it's not that I'm embarrassed to like the book. It's that I'm embarrassed to be lumped in with that kind of like problematic fandom of like, no, you just have to read 800 pages and then it's Uh good, which I don't think is that much different though than someone who's like, no, in the fifth season, this show gets really good. Mm -hmm. Like that's the kind of like pop, version of it right uh, rather well, than the like pretentious literary version
1: well very on or early on into the show i had a bunch of people who were like just big time fans who weren't sure what the podcast was going to become mm-hmm. and they were just like well you know what really helps is uh, if you have a dictionary with you the entire time to look up words i'm like what part of that sounds fun but I-, I am glad i went through it and i'm glad i'm making this podcast i hope this will be like a sherpa to help other people through because there is uh, still haven't finished it yet, but my my particular aspect is there is an incredible 400 page novel lurking in this 1100 page mammoth, and and that's just my personal thing. But I my whole thing was I could not understand what was the appeal of it, so I really wanted to like dig in, and I'm I'm glad I got to it. I'm looking forward to finishing it, even though everybody's telling me I'm going to have to read it twice, which is a whole other.
2: I also don't think that's true. Okay. I feel like people are giving you homework. Um, I don't I don't think... I don't want to say too many spoilers for people mm-hmm. listening or for you even, um, but I don't think you have to read it twice. Can I give my pitch for what's good?
1: Absolutely. Later. I,
2: and I hope it's not um, too, like, duplicative with people you've had on before. What I like about it is there's just so much. Um, to, there's just, like, so many things to grasp onto right between the stuff that's really enjoyable and the stuff that's really like illuminating to me as like, I think it's so funny and so inventive and so weird, but then also there's just this like level of stark human truth that I found really illuminating. I read it probably 11 years ago when I was like in my mid twenties And I was like, oh, I understand people better. Like, I understand addiction and depression better than I did before. And also, I think it's like super entertaining in general okay. like I, and real, not that real it's,
1: quick uh, because oh, but, i because i was going to ask anyway what yeah. actually led you into the book and what was like your kind of literary background which I, i'm sorry yeah. to interrupt but it's no that's okay anyway so
2: this i i was an english and creative writing major in college mm-hmm. and i hadn't read a ton of david foster wallace like maybe an essay here or there um I think I'd probably like read a bunch of the book, uh, the essay collection, a supposedly fun thing that I'll never do again. Mm-hmm. And then my friend Joe, who I was doing stand up with at the time, like we had started doing stand up together in Boston, um, after David Foster Wallace uh, died, Joe was like, This is a real bummer to me. He's my favorite author. Infinite Jest is my favorite book. I like recommend it to everybody. I love it. And so I was like, okay, maybe this is the push I need. So it was like a specific recommendation from someone I liked and trusted. Or like and trust. I don't know I'm saying in past tense. As if, <laughs> if Joe texted me something today, I'd be like, no yeah, more. That, I, <laughs> I, I
1: disrespect
2: your opinion now. That,
1: that was in the before time. Joe knows what he did. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, so that's how I came to it. So okay. and, and I also... I resist reading giant doorstop books like this, but Mm -hmm. also I love them when I do read them. So like I'll look at a book and be like, I don't, an 1100 page commitment. I'm just busy and I'll put it down for like a couple of weeks and have to jump back in. But like, I love this book. I love um, the amazing adventures of Cavalier and clay. So I'm like a big, like epic, um, like novel person when I get around to it. And I know these are like real white Jewish dude touchstones, white dude touchstones. But like, I do, I do think that's because there's like some merit to them and they're worth, they're worth reading. But again, I don't mean to be pushy. I just like, I had a, I like, this book like really vibrated with me. And, and I kind of liked that. It's just like, it's so overwhelming with all the things in it, like all the different Mm -hmm. plot threads and like more than it's not something to read, I think. If what you want is, uh, like a real tightly paced, no book with like, oh, this happens and it precipitates this thing, and then you you see all these threads coming together, and it's it's so exciting to watch these these synapses connect. But I do think there's just like an unbelievable amount of like really weird fun stuff, like from the so many of the character descriptions being like the characters having just these like real. Um, unexpected idiosyncrasies to like the footnotes. Like there's this, I I think it's like so playful. Like there's puns, just like a lot of puns and stuff that kind Mm -hmm. of sneak up on you. Um, So it it reminds me of, and, and- I don't think I'm throwing him under the bus to say this, but like, I know uh, the comedian Gary Goleman is a fan oh, okay. of the novel as well. And reading this, rereading this section reminded me of Gary's stand-up, in that it's like, it starts in one place and then there's just kind of all this great stuff nested into it. Mm-hmm. And then it like expands back out to where you started. And like, I just like love that. I, I love it in, in Gary's work. I love it in this uh, novel. Yeah, so that's kind of my pitch. It's just there's so much to, like, dig into and, like, sift through and enjoy page by page. But also it, like, really had this kind of, like, deep resonance with me of, of, like, explaining and illuminating, like, real, um, very real and very, at times, dark facets of the human condition that I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's like this. And I didn't understand what life is like for for some people, and this this way of describing it really like uh, pierced me. Mm-hmm.
1: That's that. Okay, no, it's uh, that's I I get all that. I, uh, I I honestly think the parts with addiction in the book are easy. Look, those, those are the things I'm going to remember. I'm probably going to forget almost everything that happens at Enfield and remember <laughs> everything that happens at Ennit. Um, yep. Yeah, it's you know you talk about the humor in it. I actually I saw a, a tweet you did recently. Where you said uh infinite jest is funnier and more readable than a confederacy of dunces, yeah, which agreed I, no I, well I, I agree, but at the same time it's like i I think I don't know if this is a personal thing, maybe you could uh lean into this. I always find humor in like the novel form to be a very strict it's it's hard to find the tone, yes, like I, for I me, oh,
2: go ahead. Oh, god, no for me as a reader, I didn't mean to interrupt you um that's fine, but I uh, oh I was gonna say um sorry oh for me as a reader I empathize too much with Mm. characters that are like supposed to be like funny in how blundering they are like Mm. when I read a confederacy of dunces my like overwhelming opinion was like oh no this very sad man (laughs) who doesn't know how to live in the world and just like it was painful for me to to read about him I was just like oh, he's not nice, and he's, like, kind of, like, has gross habits, and, like, Mm -hmm. there's, it just wasn't funny to me, because I was, like, this is too much of a bummer, don't care for it, um, but in, but in Infinite Jest, I feel like it is, uh, it is just, like, there's, it's sillier, there's, like, so much silliness, in like, the, the meetings between the, um, the revolutionary, like, the wheelchair revolutionaries mm-hmm. of uh Quebec that, that take place like in the desert with an American intelligence operative and in drag just, the entire time in drag the entire time but like they both know that he's in drag. Like it's very it's just like so silly at times. Even there was um in the section we read today there's a footnote that where it was like the the Enfield Tennis Academy psychologist keeps or you know uh keeps bringing up this this psychological term to Hal and Candenza, the kind of main, one of the main characters. And there's a footnote that like you think is going to explain this term and the entire footnote you have to yeah. move forward 500 <laughs> pages and it just says no clue. And it's yeah. so funny. Like that's such a <laughs> funny bit to make the reader be like, oh, okay, maybe this, I, maybe I'm dumb for not knowing what this thing is. Or maybe like this is a an obscure thing that I'm about to learn and it's just for the bit. And I think there are so many good Bits that like I'm surprised that that's the thing that like that I think is underrated, and I think Dave Eggers talks about that in like the the preface that he wrote for the edition that I originally read.
1: Oh yeah, that one that one's still in mind too. The yeah, theater, yeah, yeah, yeah. But... It's, I... it's just like very enjoyable. But sorry, uh, but you were saying about literary humor. Oh no, uh, I I had tried to read Confederacy of Dunces and I had very much the same issue. As a matter of fact, I feel like I didn't really turn a corner on Infinite Jest until. I found uh, there's an artist online. He goes under the name Infinite Jensen. Who he had done all these sketches from like scenes in the book, like oh, cool. know, like a pemeless, like you know, selling the urine, and mm-hmm. it, but some of the more fantastical stuff in the book. But like once I kind of saw it, once I was picturing the world in my head as like a little more cartoony and like frayed at the edges, like this makes much more sense to me right now. And yeah,
2: I mean, it is. There's a lot of like basically magical realism, right? Right which I think is cool. Um, yeah. And, it, but it's very madcap in a lot of yes. times but then, but then you were saying like the addiction stuff gets like really um, sincere and like eloquent about the kind of like painful compulsion of addiction. And the, the, um, the numbness of depression is something else that I took away from it. That I like, like the idea and this is, it's not the only place in art and literature that this is, um, This is portrayed but like it was the first place that i really saw because i'm i i don't think of i don't think i'm a depressive person myself and i always imagine depression as looking and feeling like sadness but like just the kind of um the the like real stark description of, of depression as like numbness and total lack of pleasure like it's the first place i saw the word um anhedonia just like the total lack of pleasure and i was like oh, this is so, it like, it like really blew my mind. And that's partly because I have, um, I've had like a pretty fortunate brain chemistry in mm-hmm. that it's not something I've, I've had to like live with my, myself. Um, but yeah, it was just like really, I think, um, illuminating about like a very common and very um, like distressing condition.
1: Mm -hmm. this is where i think uh some people and i include myself in this might take the book for granted in that i feel like in the last 15 years or so uh depression has been destigmatized a lot and talked about a lot so you really me me personally that stuff didn't hit me as much but really just because i read it a bunch of other places i didn't read this in 1996 so in that way it might be one of like the earlier examples of really like i i'm I wonder for people with depression, if they come from like kind of a cloistered background, if this does destigmatize it a lot for them just to have somebody put their pain into words, especially when it's something that's misunderstood. It's like, Oh, they're just sad, you know, buck up, bucko, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah.
2: And 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 maybe it doesn't, you know, maybe it doesn't uh, represent everyone's experience of of depression or or, or addiction, but just like the, the kind of that pain and like day to day, um, sensation or lack of sensation was, like, really, again, I keep saying illuminating, but I was, like, oh, fuck. This is, like, not only – it's not, like, worse than – I'm not, like, oh, no, it's bad. But mm-hmm. I was, like, oh, this is qualitatively different than, like, you commonly hear people talk about this. Even Even though I'd heard kind of, like, the broad strokes of, like, you know, depression isn't just being sad. But mm-hmm. I still, for some reason – like when even when it was portrayed in a lot of art it still like manifests as like sadness plus if that makes sense like it's more than sad but this was like this reading this was like oh sometimes there's not even a feeling of sadness and like it's like a total lack of sensation which is just like not something i'd encountered that much before but again that's just like like you were saying it's like my own brain and my own reading proclivities
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that that's why it's probably great. Somebody, uh, the word Smith as DFW, like yeah. to articulate that from basically like wartime correspondent, letting everybody know like where it's all going down. Mm-hmm. Like this is what it is. So, okay. Well, uh, Josh, if you're ready, I think we can get into our notes for this week, please. All right. Um, So the way I do this, I just read from my notes. I have little stuff in here, but uh, feel free to interrupt me at any point if you have anything to say. Okay. It is the night after Independence Day. Staffer Fultz has taken Erdity and Gompert to an NA discussion that specifically focused on marijuana addiction, the only NA meeting in Boston explicitly devoted to marijuana. Fultz wants to show them that... False wants to show them how non-unique and unalone they were in being taken down by marijuana, which I find great that, like, you know, you're, you're non-unique, you're not alone, while at the same time, by the way, this is the only meeting that caters to weirdos. Right,
2: players. right, 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 right. Uh,
1: consensus was how marijuana destroyed them slowly but thoroughly. Despite the strangeness of our introduction to Erdity very early in the book, the members of the circle all claimed to have reached the same pinnacle of crippling paralysis by analysis. This along with a withdrawal that sounds closer to alcohol, loss of appetite, mania, insomnia, fatigue, nightmares. Uh, That's another thing I'm glad with this book is you don't really hear a lot about the dangers of like deep marijuana addiction, which, Mm -hmm. and I don't think we would if it weren't DFW's specific, like that seems to be a specific thing that like really took hold of him when he dove deep into it.
2: Totally. Yeah. And and again, yeah, this is something that like, I feel like with, with like marijuana you always get the kind of two competing views of like actually it's a a medicine and everyone should have free and complete access to it because it's like uh, beneficial and not dangerous or you get the health class version of like if you smoke weed once it is a a pact with the devil and Mm -hmm. you will immediately it, it takes you down a dark road where you're overdosing from heroin within minutes and it's like there's probably it's probably closer to the first thing, but like there's an element of, Oh, for some people, this is like a real, um, there is a real uh, danger for some people.
1: Oh yeah. It's unfortunately it's the thing you see with the pendulum, with most things in society, it goes from being absolutely demonized and it doesn't, it would be nice if it just came to like, oh, actually we were wrong. It's pretty good. But then they push it all the way through. Also, it cures all cancer and you just need to find the right stuff if it's not working for you.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Which like, I think that, I, because I do believe that there are there are likely, you know, medicinal qualities that haven't been oh, studied thoroughly. But I think the same as with like any medicine or healthful substances, like, well, the way to to treat isn't just to use... <laughs> constantly unregulated that's or not for everyone at least
1: right right uh right along with what we were saying nobody uses the word depression but it's hanging over the entire room like a fog uh, a gassy plasm so dreaded no beginner could bear to look up and name it mm. great little sense of, uh the group lasts only an hour with no middle break ev- ending with everybody holding hand and saying the our father though very lackadaisical and not in unison. Gompert swears she hears the man next to her say, and lead us not into Penn Station. <laughs> uh, meeting shockingly ended with everybody hugging each other, suited like a fight club. This was unusual for a meeting of any kind. Gompert and Foltz go along with the hugging, but Erdody was never a hug type, hanging towards the back of the room trying to be inconspicuous. Until a tall, heavy black man with a golden incisor and flat top hairstyle peeled away from a hug group and approach Erdity in the universal Frankenstein gesture of hug me. Erdity backs off with a universal gesture of no thanks. Erdity tries to shake the man's hand instead and introduce himself. He introduces himself as Roy Tony without accepting the handshake. Erdity at- apologizes for not wanting the hug, along with the added awkwardness of a well-roy, if I may call you Roy, or Mr. Tony, if you prefer, unless it's a compound first name hyphenated Roy-Tony and then a last name, Roy takes the fence. Oh, you're not a hugger, so you're saying I'm a hugger. With the delicious line, the ominous finger pointing of street aggression. So we're hitting a little bit, I've noticed a, a little bit of like a blind spot when it comes to writing black Actually, characters.
2: I noticed this like really jumped out at me. And I think like this is a moment, I, I, I'm sure you've covered it at least a little before on the show, but like the kind of, um, first of all, the writing blind spot, you're just like, Oh, this is like a weird '90s white guy writing a black guy. Right, like really jumps. Like street aggression is like such a weird loaded term.
1: Even even the description, like flat top, gold tooth. Okay, okay, I, I'll, I'll go along with this. Uh,
2: right, and like some of it is like, okay, this is just who the character is, and then some of it is like, but why is that who the character is right. in its entirety? Um, but and then I mean, there is like this the the kind of specter of like. David Foster Wallace as a um, problematic figure in real life, right? like a person who didn't always treat others well. And like, I do think that hangs over my ability to like recommend this work of fiction to people Mm -hmm. in in, like as complete a way as I would otherwise. Um, But yeah, I think that the kind of like writing blind spot made me think of that too, because you, I, there is like, there are elements of this passage with this character that I'm like, Oh, this is like, he's really getting at something real. And then parts of it where I'm like, "Hmm, this kind of like cartoonishness doesn't quite serve the book in the way that other kinds of like exaggeration do.
1: Right. And it is, I, 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 really don't want to be the, like, you know, the, the gotcha no, I don't uh, think I don't yes. think
2: it is gotcha, but like I think yeah. when you're revisiting you kind of have to go, "Oh, this I don't think this is how it would go now."
1: <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, cuz it on the one hand, you don't want to put 2020 principles to 1996, but on the other hand, it's like, "Oh, I need this character to feel nervous and out of place. What would do that? A large black man." Like, right. Eh, exactly. Okay.
2: And and like, yeah, it just it just like is yeah, it's slightly jarring to like the, the <laughs> description
1: of this character um he actually so uh was it oh yeah Roy Tooney Roy Tony grips Erdity by his lapels and is holding him off the ground you think I like to go around hugging folks we fucking do what they tell us it's hugs not drugs in here you little meh. you're not comfortable who the fuck are you so even though like I I kind of like the point he's getting at here even if it is coming with a very aggressive type thing and I guess that is kind of like the benefit of this is we're seeing him as like this scary black guy, which is the way he's trying to be portrayed. But just like everybody else, like I'm doing what the fuck I'm told Fuck your discomfort. This is, they're telling me this will keep me sober. So I'm doing it. And I love that we have here. uh, Fultz is literally trying to peel Roy Tony off of Erdity and Erdity just bursts into tears and just embraces him.
2: Yeah. It's. I mean, I think that's like there. There is something to it, right? Like that. What that. What he's trying to describe is like, I'm not doing this because I like it. Like, oh, I'm not a hugger, and he's like, I'm not a hugger. Yeah. I'm the the passage at the the end, right? At the end of this interaction, where he's like, if you don't, are you going to like acknowledge and validate my vulnerability in front of you, mm. or am I going to have to rip off my your head and shit down your neck? Is like <laughs> so. That's like such a great line you know what i mean like that's that's like a joke but it contains this deep truth right of like i am i am uh doing this thing that is like against what society has conditioned me to be or like where my nature or what I i have wanted from the world and like are you going to um are you going to validate how how vulnerable and, and and how painful this is for me, or am I going to have to be violent? But again, the fact that like this this has to come in the the body of like big scary black guy to like for maximum effect is like come on, like it it that kind of yeah, it, it feels like a little much, Dave.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit. I mm, I do kind of not only for just as another human being, I wish he survived, but. Uh, like, I, I would love to hear him answer for this now. And I, that's even the wrong terminology. I, I love seeing artists look back on their work and being able to be like, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't the best. Which, yeah. And I think that, that also just comes from being a comedy thing where I feel like a lot of other artists don't have to kill their darlings the way we do. Like you have to throw out some of your best stuff and you have to look back like, I don't know what the hell I was thinking then. Mm-hmm. but yeah i would have, i would love to love to have seen him modern day look back on this and like try to give his uh perspectives
2: i and i love when people are able to do that in, in a really um genuine way right and go like mm-hmm. oh yeah this thing that i wrote or or drew or performed it's like this was an imperfect uh r- like rendition of of the thing i was trying to get across and like that I, I think I would, can do better now. And like I, I you know, whether an apology is not, you know, not that like I want right. David Foster Wallace's ghost to apologize for this passage, but like whatever, whatever the um, kind of growth is like commensurate with the, like the, how kind of out of step the work is.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. All
1: right. So, jump forward a little bit page 508 we have steeply and maraith are continuing their talk about the temptation to view the entertainment steeply says some of the test subjects were lost a data analysis intern got too tempted and watched a read-only copy the head of data analysis was lost too when he tried to pull the intern out being kept on life support since name was hank this was extra tragic to steeply as this man had incredible restraint gave up sugar and other things cold turkey when he found out he was diabetic and now to see him in a coma, but his eyes still fiendishly seeking the nourishment of entertainment is disturbing to him. Uh, Steeply says he finds the sheer contentment of it to be the temptation, to know full contentment. Marath says his people aren't tempted by that aspect, but are tempted by its efficacy. Steeply mourns Hank, said the phrase that stuck with him, that his eyes were empty of intent. Marath says Quebec is not tempted like the US are because they respect its power too much. Yeah, I like a lot of that back and forth thing. Uh, the specific thing of the guy on life support with his eyes still, like, fiending for nourishment. There's, a, I'm, I, I really like the cinematic aspects of this novel, like something I can actually picture, and that being very disturbing right there.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are just so many great little um, little lines here, right? Of, like, of he just, like, unexpected. And, and this is, like, I think this is such a... Um, an interesting parallel to like the general addiction material within the book. Right. Just this, this is kind of the idea of like, th- there's this like just say no to the entertainment vibe mm-hmm. in Canada, whereas the U S is kind of like, is there a way we could weaponize this substance? And like, mm-hmm. it's just a very funny um, and, and like interesting and like human way to discuss this, like kind of fantastical, uh, part of the of the novel right like that this guy who immediately cut out sugar this man of like incredible restraint and discipline and, and uh like awareness of his own health and body like became uh just like absolutely drained of intellect and life upon mm. encountering this this like visual and auditory stimulus mm.
1: and it, it is it is a great angle to take for people who don't have uh don't have addiction in their background. They, I feel like everybody can get a certain idea of how entertainment can overwhelm you. Uh, talking with somebody a week or two ago, I actually said, if this book were written today with all the modern internet and cell phones, if we have it, I wonder if he would have gone with entertainment as much as information. I feel like that's mm. kind of how things have played out. It's more less entertainment, more like being inundated with so much information that you don't yeah. know up and down, left and right anymore. That's so
2: interesting. I always come back to the passage about um, Joelle, what's her name? The last name, but she- Van Dyne. Yeah, Joelle Van Dyne. And I don't, I think you might've gotten to this point already, but they're just the part about her drug use and that like, Mm -hmm. at some point, too much fun became just too much. So I think like the idea of like something you do for fun and like Mm -hmm. something like an entertainment or a pastime becoming like, crushing and overwhelming and, and addictive is like so central to this but I do think like at this moment in history what great right, what would this what would this look like?
1: Okay, okay. all right uh, jumping ahead here gonna gonna give you a heads up this next little chunk there's a lot of stuff that I didn't really like that much so I'm not I'm not gonna put it on you to justify it but That's okay. I, I, but uh, this is I would say indicative of a lot of the stuff I don't like about the book. Um, so we have Pemulus and Hal are reading the, uh, I'm going to pronounce it, I guess, the Escax, Escaton. Es- I think Escaton is that what it is? Oh, well, no, no, this oh, is- Oh, well, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Well, no, no, this is the technical core directory right. for Escaton. Right, right, so right, right. I don't I'm know sorry. if it's just Escax or- Yep. But uh, we start with the odd detail that the chapter begins with a list of things in the room that are blue. Uh, two blue lamps, violets in a vase, uh, wallpaper. I, this, is, and throughout the chapter, we will continue to just add little things that are blue. Mm-hmm. And I know I've had people say like, "What well, part of the appeal is that he includes everything. And that's a little bit of the, uh, all right, I'll just make the full argument I was going to make here. When a, lot, when a lot of people talk about sincerity versus irony, which is a big thing David Foster Wallace talked about a lot. I feel like a lot of the overload with, with detail I feel like I've been ruined by like lots of years of very like trying too hard to be weird comedy, where <laughs> throwing in a lot of extraneous detail is like the peak of irony. And yet it I'm seeing it in this book presented as sincerity. And it's just I, I don't get it. And I personally Like every time I start, every time I notice, like, oh, there's no paragraph breaks for like five pages, I immediately something in me turns off. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, is that what? What are you getting at? It what? What's your idea as far as these where where it derails for like a while on like minuscule detail. I mostly love it I think the
2: list of things that were that are blue in the room was like not that part like didn't super resonate with me and I honestly Mm -hmm. wondered I was like is this something that I'm forgetting from before like is there something that it's calling back to you or echoing forward um and that like that kind of list of stuff didn't do it but like I love the like Oh, they call her Lateral Alice because of this. And this is oh, yeah, I'm sitting things. with her and like this is how the office is constructed so that you can so because Avril doesn't like doors. And then her brother, who's the headmaster, has this like jaws like door set up when you're coming in and like his physical demeanor may, or his his physique combined with his personality makes it feel like he's receding from you as he talks. And like just all these weird kind of fantastical details and like digressions and going back to the time that um, Hal was previously waiting in this office, just mm. like, and his mom brings him out an apple, like all of that stuff I love, but I do think I am like, not a person who I, I just don't like latch on to passages that are like a ton of physical detail, like it Mm. kind of makes my eyes glaze over a little bit when you're like
1: Same. I had that very early on where he like goes down the schematics of like a film cartridge viewer. And I actually I described the blue thing, but I I noticed in my notes the thing I missed here. There's literally the footnote where it goes down the detail of all the photos on the wall of all the students. And
2: that one I thought was kind of charming though. Yeah. That, that okay. one I liked different because it was about, it was like kind of illustrative of the characters in a way that like, here's what's blue doesn't necessarily do for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like, I don't need to know that much about, like, um, unless there's something else that, I, that I'm like missing being conveyed by like, what's blue? Like whose eyes are we seeing through this? Who's noticing this, right? Mm-hmm. Like is someone compulsively tracking what's blue in the room? Cause that's interesting. But like the idea of just like a list of blue things, it, it just like jumping in there after not having like picked up the book in a number of years, mm-hmm. I was like, what am I missing here? But I did, I read the footnote about the pictures and I was like, Oh, what does this say about all the, the characters? Mm. It's also, there's so much, that, sorry to like, if I'm jumping ahead, no, that's fine. but when, when Ortho Stice comes in and he's wearing, he's got his, uh, comped fila gear, and it says that he all when i saw the name ortho Stice, i haven't read this book in 11 years and i went oh he's the darkness right they call him the darkness right and then there's that little note about he always wears all black on the court they call him the darkness and i'm like this is like a character that appears throughout the book and and it takes 500 pages to get to what his nickname is <laughs> Which is so funny to me. Like, there's so much stuff that, that like that I read in this little passage that I was like, "Oh, this doesn't happen till here." Like, we don't know this until here, and, and that to me is like fascinating because there were details that I was like, "Oh yeah, this is like foundational to the experience of reading reading Infinite Jest."
1: See, and that was such a hard hurdle for me to get over because, like, as soon as we like got into the personality and background of Don Gately, that's when I was like, "Okay." I'm in. I want to yep. know more about this character. Yeah. But, like, the details that flesh him out come, like, 300 pages yep. after we meet him. Not only that, I looked ahead. This whole thing where you know they're waiting in the office and we know this is going to be a big thing because this is going to be about the eschaton fallout. Yep. I, I went ahead just to look it up. Like, I only got as far as 100 pages without looking. Like, they don't describe what happens here for at least another 100 pages. And that right. is just, infuriating to me because then by the time we get back to it i like miss some of it and uh when you were talking about the blue stuff there is i've noticed a thing in the book where there's an issue of like a soft perspective like i feel like what he's writing is being colored by the people in the room though mm-hmm. not actively like it would make a li- for me it, the blue thing would make a little more sense if we were only looking through hal's eyes yes it, but not I, only but I,
2: oh sorry no go ahead I think you're right, though. I think, but it's tough. Like, when Hal is in the room, I think we're kind of seeing Hal's perspective. The same as when mm-hmm. Don Gately is in the room, even when there are other characters that we know a lot about, we're kind of seeing Gately's perspective. Right. And the same with, like, Kate Gompert.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's, I go that's of that. something I would find out more as I go. And I think I only noticed that here because the episode previous to this, we had uh, the chapter where it was young James and Candenza helping his father try to fix a bed but that is like strict first person we know we're in his thing because and we see him seeing like the physics of the way the doorknob is rolling around the floor enough that dfw includes a schematic so i, I get all right i'm kind of like justifying this as i go along like okay, okay. This, this does make a little more sense seeing that if we're if we realize we're looking at this through Hal's point of view even if it's not strictly written as such and, you know, father and son type thing, which obviously we have a lot of in yep. this book. Okay. Yeah,
2: and it's very, right. It's very, uh, things about Hal are like, he's compulsive, he's analytical. He has some of his father's like, d- desire, like ability to see how things work. He wrote that, he like wrote up the Eschaton handbook, right, we mm-hmm. learned here that like, that it's something that he just kind of like did so that it was all codified somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, it is, it does feel like, a Hal thing that he would be like, that's blue and that's blue. And like, you know, just kind of like categorizing things.
1: Right. We even have a line in here that the the blue wallpaper gives him a feeling of a calling Yeah. Yeah. The the cloud.
2: Yeah. The cloud, like clouds on sky wallpaper. Right. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, We see all this is occurring in the headmaster's office waiting room. Axford and Kitten plan are also there waiting for whatever punishment is to come. We meet, Lateral Alice Moore, who'd been a traffic reporter before getting brain damage in a helicopter accident, and now neurologically can only move side to side, hence lateral Alice Moore. Again, some of these things I really wish I could see on film, because they translate so well. Yeah,
2: it reminds me, um, a lot of this reminds me of, like, The Adventures
1: of Pete and Pete. I don't know if you ever watched that. I, 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 I was a little young for it, but okay. I caught it later on, and I loved it.
2: And just like lateral Alice Moore feels like a, a Pete and Pete character, like someone mm-hmm. who can only move side to side. She has like a nickname that is after a like a physical and neurological disability, mm-hmm. but she's also like incredibly good natured and like mimics the sound of traffic helicopters. When kids are like waiting to talk to the headmaster and just mm-hmm. like shoots the shit with the, the students, which I think it, like that's such a, um, that's such a an interesting quality
1: yeah i do I do love the little touch where it feels like there's a lot of people in this book who like are uh that they, they have some kind of like dismissive insulting nickname, but nobody does it dismissive or insultingly that's just like yeah, she moves laterally lateral yeah, Alice, we call mom. her
2: lateral Alice, yeah, <laughs> and she um like I don't know, I just like that we meet this character who like really all you have to know in this instance is that she is, she the, the students have a good relationship with her and she is the like uh, secretary or administrator in this department that that is the gatekeeper to the headmaster's office right like you don't have to know much more than that to for the action to make sense but the, it's just like her um her light you know we get these like really weird dark details from her mm-hmm. life that are like really intense right like if you if there was like a helicopter accident And, um, like I'm from, I'm from the Boston area
1: also, which is another thing. Oh, I, I I, I I wanted to get into that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, um, if there had been like a helicopter crash of two traffic helicopters, and then one of the, um, traffic reporters could only move sideways after, that's like a person I would remember my whole life just having Mm. heard about
1: as a child. So I do think that's a great thing he does in the writing in that, uh, there's no, it, There's no reason he couldn't just say like, and the secretary tells him to go in, but he wants everybody to, there's no like even background characters have their own backstory, which is, you know, life more or less. Yes.
2: And I enjoy reading that. Like I enjoy like everybody in the room getting there. Like we know who they are and what they're feeling in this situation. I'm like very, that's some of the stuff that I really like digging into in in the book.
1: Mm. so uh we'll deviate for a second because i did want to ask you having grown up in the boston area uh do you feel a lot of like local flavor to this does it does this feel like yeah th- does this feel like a legitimate okay i i i know this area it's taking place in does it like yeah. ring true
2: yeah well it was also like it's i read it more than a decade after it was it was published so mm-hmm. like i think there were things that have been that have changed since then right like things that had changed in the interim which Mm. is interesting to clock but it was also like you know received wisdom from my childhood about like what different neighborhoods were like just like what you hear about like the city i grew up like probably 10 miles outside boston eight 10 miles okay and uh but like enfield where the tennis academy is basically they're like okay it's west of alston brighton East of Newton, it's essentially Chestnut Hill where BC is, but like mm. Chestnut Hill is never mentioned. So, and so this is like, which is such a weird specific choice, right. To like put it in the specific place where there's already a place and mm. that place doesn't really exist, <laughs> which is like, I, I thought about that a lot. Cause it took like, it kind of takes a while to triangulate exactly where it is, but that sounds like there's no Enfield there in real mm. life. Um, but it is like a pretty, a pretty, like Chestnut Hill feels like a place where there would be a prestigious tennis Academy maybe.
1: Okay. So it only, it only really applies because I just watched it for the first time and read a bunch on it, but Fiddler on the Roof, uh, very much the same thing where they give it like, Oh, it's this town in Ukraine. Yes, of course. Exactly. And it's a town that I I believe doesn't exist, but they, but they place it so specifically that Mm -hmm. it's like, it's like these three towns overlaying more or less. So
2: yeah. And that's, that's what that part of the city feels like. And like, um, or what that part of the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I was living in, well, the time I read this, cause I put it down for like a while cause I took a long road trip with a friend in the middle. But mm-hmm. like I was living with my parents for part of it to save up for this, to just like go on the road for a month and, and do comedy at a loss. Um, but before that, um, I'd been living in Alston and then after I lived in Brighton. So like this like part of Boston was like where I was at the time. So I mm-hmm. felt very like, Oh, this is like kind of an alternate reality. And also like, it's the future, right? Cause it takes place in the future, like the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the past, because it's written from like, this is what the city is like in mm-hmm.
1: 1995, 96. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, it's, I, I definitely like just any kind of art. There is just a certain, there's, there's probably a German word for it somewhere. The feeling of recognition of like, oh, I know all that. Yeah. Like, I remember when I first got into podcasts. podcast, I was listening to, uh, I think like Race Wars with Kurt Metzger and Sherrod Small. And I, I'm in Philly, but I'm originally from like South Jersey. And mm-hmm. they start talking about like strip clubs that like, that was the first strip club I ever, like, like seven years old, driving past. What's that? It's a strip club. And they're talking about it. Like, this is mind blowing to me.
2: Yeah, it's really like, any of those those little details that ring like specifically true are so fascinating uh, and compelling. And so like, I do have that extra layer of like, Oh, I know this place. I do think like the kind of like we were talking about kind of like racially dubious stuff of like Mm -hmm. the slums of Alston and Brighton, like that kind of that those passages are a little bit like, well, how much of this are you like projecting? Right. You know what I mean? But like, Oh, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say, he does have the one line in here where he's talking about Pemulus's, uh fear of getting expelled and mm-hmm. having to go back to Alston. Yep. And pretty much having that, and this is just something I know being from a small town like that, the aspect of like, you got a ticket out and you yep. fucked it up and having to yeah. go back with the shame of that. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, like, oh, you were the one that left here because you thought you were better than us and yep. now here you are. Just,
2: mm. And that's a very Massachusetts attitude mm-hmm. of like, not that it's everyone everywhere that has it, but I think there's like, that was very recognizable to me as well Mm -hmm. of like, Oh, you thought you could do something like what? Like, look at you, Mr. Big shot Mm -hmm. is like a very, and Alston is like, technically, it's like a borough of Boston essentially. So it's Mm -hmm. like technically the city it's within the city limits, but like you, you, when you talk about it, if you're like, Oh, I'm going to Boston for the day, you don't, you would say Alston if you meant Alston. The same way you would say right. like, "Oh, I'm going to Queens if you're going to Queens." It's like a continua a contiguous part, but like with a separate geography that is like known.
1: Right. It's almost like you're going to you're going to the residential city. You're not going a- any of the things you go to the city for does not exist in that area. Of right. The city.
2: Right. 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 You're going to maybe you have friends there. Maybe there's uh, there's. A restaurant and um, you know maybe you have uh, you work there but like you're not going to the the ballet
1: exactly yeah okay so uh let's jump back into this uh waiting room connects to the offices of charles tavis and avril in cambenza currently i love this little sub story every female student under 13 is in avril's office aside from kitten plan who given her enormity looks on those cross-dressed in her dress and barrette. Avril has white hair and has had for a few months since before himself suicide. Hair that skipped gray right to white. Lovely legs that Axford is checking out. She taps a blue pen against her teeth in contemplation. We're informed after a molester coach at a California academy that the entire tennis continent is in a bit of a diddle panic and that the school has specific authority figures, in this case, Dr. Dolores Rusk, to keep an eye out for the more easy, diddleable female students. Currently, Avril is stepping into that role. And we go for a whole thing like, you know, asking has a has a big person touched you in a way you weren't comfortable with? And the girls come back with like, I don't like how my grandma pinches my cheeks or I don't like how my stepdad moves me through a crowd with a hand at my back. And then this devolves into like, they end up talking about what members of their family resemble zoo animals. Just, just all kind of all kind of fun. I, I, I'm enjoying that. A- yeah,
2: and the, the kids, I mean, so there's so much in this passage, right? Like there's that kind of like, weird again like a slightly like weird description of uh what's her name this stu- the 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 female student who is taller uh, oh, Kate, kitten plan, K- kitten plan, uh, and, and kitten plan, right um but then we get into like she uh avril and candenza is like delicately trying to see if the children have been sexually abused right by like talking mm-hmm. to them and they have this response that is both childlike in that they don't fully know how to engage with the question Mm -hmm. right because they they're not they're talking they're answering a different question than she's asking yeah um because they are children and don't have the vocabulary but they're also like incredibly precocious right Mm -hmm. like the fact that they're saying like when my dad like moves me into a room by touching my back it's like he's trying to influence me into the room and Mm -hmm. i get so mad i want to kick him in the shins and they (laughs) just They're just these, like, incredibly complex adult-like articulations of these feelings that children feel. But, like, mm. that's not how children talk. Which right. is so And then, um, oh, but even, so this is what I was mentioning before. The, like, coach who was a child molester, his name was, like, something Ted Feely, F-I-E-L-Y, and mm-hmm. they call him... Touchy feely right like that's kind of the the public name and that's just a name that was invented for the pun right like Mm -hmm. that wasn't a guy that he just invented that like this would be this guy's name so they could give him this nickname which is like I think it's like a very kind of um corny wordplay joke Mm -hmm. that is like sprinkled in all the time in this book right these like little Mm -hmm. goofy jokes because, yeah, I, I was just, like, really struck by that because that's an invented name for an invented person mm. and an and invented nickname.
1: Well, I know there has been the McFeely for a while just because uh, I feel like that, that, that was something they just threw around for, like, a kind of touchy right. guy. And the only reason I know that is apparently uh, Mr. Rogers named, like, the a mailman. mailman on his show. And he felt bad about it afterwards because it got that notion. But yep. McFeely was, like, his wife's maiden name. <laughs>
2: Oh, that's funny! I never knew that that was the reason.
1: No, there's a um, few there's a few stories about him just being like an adorable, oblivious old man, <laughs> like use doing a puppet show with his middle fingers because he like didn't realize until oh, that's too really late. <laughs> funny,
2: but this, yeah, this is like the inverse of that, where they he makes it the name just for the pun. Like you don't need such a um, like it's almost gilding the lily to make that his name, mm. and then invent that everyone called him touchy feely. It's like which obviously that's just what fiction is but it's so funny that this guy who's brought up again like this character who's brought up in a one paragraph aside uh and then is mentioned again like once later in this chapter has this like public renown such that he has like a derogatory nickname and (laughs) and his his whole character is like designed around this Mm -hmm. i mean not a character but like his whole uh like the awareness of him in the book is like based around this name. That's a pun.
1: Right. <laughs> um, okay. Back here. We have uh, Avril's office has no door as she spent so much time alone as a child. She is now overcompensated as an adult, having little sense of spatial privacy or boundary. And we're going to learn how that applies towards uh, Tavis as well. Uh, Pemulus mm-hmm. gives a different reasoning for his Russ Every time Hal asks, Hal himself is uncomfortable around her, but not for any way he can put a finger on. Penulous tried a prank of electrifying her doorknob, only to end up zapping an Irish cleaning lady that nearly killed her and left her eyes permanently crossed. Lawsuit is still pending. We get some details on Axford. He is redheaded, burns easily, even through layers of lemon pledge, his style being described as a less effective version of John Wayne. He is under enormous pressure to maintain the family tradition of all Axfords attending Yale. Given his terrible grades, he knows tennis is his only prayer. He therefore doesn't outperform himself, avoiding the big avoiding the big pro leagues for the goal of collegiate tennis which is bush league competition and i think that's great just because that would be something i would have no reference for if not for his entire explanation that like no to go to college and play tennis means you're a loser because pro tennis players go pro at like 16 17.
2: yeah which is so right it's so interesting that this character is so desperate to go to Yale and follow mm-hmm. in the family footsteps, which is like, again, it's like a place of immense privilege that that's what he's shooting for. But he sh- but the way he has to do it is by being, being mediocre. mediocre.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, love it. Um, okay. And kitten plan applies fake tattoos to her knuckles every day. Don't have anything other than that. It's just a neat little detail.
2: And then uh, she chews them off, right? She yes. like scrapes them off with her teeth <laughs> instead of washing them off
1: it does remind me of being like a little do you remember being in like young middle school elementary school when like the girls were gigantic the older girls were gigantic like uh, getting getting bullied around by them was always a very confusing thing (laughs) (laughs) um okay yeah the boys feared corrective discipline aka pukers Basically, their drills are made so ridiculously hard that they puke. Already, many morning drills are known to be nothing more than attitude adjusters. One former student actually called the police and reported as child abuse. The benefit of this type of punishment is that it is also indistinguishable from athletic conditioning. Uh, Pemulus is planning a defense around eschaton existing long before any of them enrolled there, that they had only codified it and added to its strategy matrix, not anything that could hold him responsible for the events of the other day. They plan to do good cop, bad cop, with Hal occasionally interjecting on a righteous penniless defense. Axford has been instructed to count the carpet fibers and say nothing. I do like we have a whole like trial thing set up, which again is so like I want to see what happens in there, but yeah. I guess we'll get to it eventually.
2: And I also, I mean, I love the the like little detail that like Hal's mother is the like deputy headmaster and his Mm -hmm. uncle is the headmaster and it hadn't occurred to him to go to them for leniency because he's so divorced from thinking about his family in like they're his family and they work at the school but that doesn't occur to him not because he's like morally upright but because he's so compartmentalized which again is like the kind of thing you would expect from someone who is like her fingernails are blue and the wallpaper is blue and these mm-hmm. fibers in the carpet are blue. Like someone who just like thinks about things at, as they, and, and puts them into categories.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, CT has a similar background to James and Candenza, a mix of hard science and athletics. He'd been a civil engineer designing stadia and arenas in Canada, but lost a lot of clout over a fiasco with the Toronto blue Jays sky dome where an attached hotel overlooking the field ended with many couples fornicating in full view of children and TV cameras. So this is, I don't know if you know, but this is for the audience. So I read that and that let off a light bulb in my head because my former day job was working for like live event ticketing, drawing seating chart. Mm -hmm. That entire thing is a hundred percent true. That actually happened. CT is the only fictional thing in that sentence. Uh, oh that's so funny yeah the toronto- i vaguely
2: remember that
1: yeah the toronto sky Dome was built with an adjoining hotel and then within like the opening season people were just like having sex against the window uh masturbating that people have actually said like they thought it was like one-way glass and didn't know Oh, any that's different. funny to the extent that people who stay there now have to sign a waiver that they will not do anything lewd in front of the tv camera wow
2: the, um, the other thing about that, too, is that it's such a specific scandal, right, to, like, put on this fictional character mm-hmm. that he was just dis- kind of run out of this profession, disgraced, mm-hmm. but no- and, and was a bad uh, civil engineer, but not nobody was harmed. He just, like, didn't consider this human element, right?
1: Right. Like, his like only it- thing, like, uh, my job is to make sure you can fit the max number of people yep. here, and that's mm-hmm. it and just didn't consider that at all. It's just I love, in a book where so much fantastical, over-the-top thing happens, he slides something in there that I, yep. feel, I feel like a lot of people who read this book ha- just think that's another fiction. Yes. Uh, Tavis is terribly shy around people and works around it by being wordy and open and expansive. That's excruciating to be around. Mario's take is that it's so obviously a defensive shield, it's hard not to feel bad for him. The openest man of all time. Hal has been called to the office only once this year to be asked by CT to take temporary charge of a blind nine-year-old student blinded by toxic waste by living in Ticonderoga too long. He's also blind in spite of several mutated eyes growing out of his massively sized head. So big they had to carry a rolling IV like stand to help support the size of it. Despite all this, they were somehow a decent tennis player. Yeah, just I don't think he ever explains like echolocation or like, Oh no, he's he. nope.
2: Never because, discussed. Yeah. I don't know that this character like ever comes back again and then was quickly, quickly is leaves the Academy. Right. Because there was like a family emergency and so, right. and then disappears forever. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's a little people coming in and out. Uh, CT is described as small in the sense of far away and receding. He has a tiny mustache and his eyes are set at slightly different angles. This leads to mocking from students like Stice who can crack up any student seeing CT and holding his hand up as if watching him recede on the horizon and also tilting his head to make CT's eyes align properly. CT also talks with his hands now after quitting smoking a years back. A few years back. A small man of locational panic and frenzy, he and Avril are a duo of compulsion, sleeping in different rooms, accumulating among them the total sleep of one insomniac. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I hope we get more into their actual background with CT and Avril because they both, they both talk about having been neglected and now are like incredibly open in compensation of that. And enough that apparently there's some incestuous stuff that happens there too. But, uh,
2: it's, uh, um, and, and the, the way that it comes out in two different mediums where like Avril doesn't believe in doors and CT doesn't believe in like emotional boundaries.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, we get to the details with him. Uh, failing and talking to a young girl up here. uh ct's two halves of his face don't match up this may be part of the reason he was so fond of opening up his skull and exposing his brain metaphorically in his shocking style of openness without warning or invitation just reiterating i just like that description uh we haven't done this in a while but we have our word of the week which i tend to do anytime there's a. Uh, A a big dictionary where we don't see a lot.
2: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. And this one is phantods, which I feel like I've heard before. I actually asked my girlfriend just to make sure this wasn't me being a dipshit and missing a word my entire life. Uh, Yeah, phantods is used several times in this. It is a noun, a state or attack of uneasiness or unreasonableness, as in that confrontation really gave me the phantods. So where
2: what is, does it say the coinage? I've like only account, encountered it in this book and mostly as like howling fantods as like mm-hmm. a um a colloquialism. And I didn't know if, it, cause I think there was also like at some point like a fan site called howling fantods. And I never mm-hmm. knew that whether this was like coined for this book or whether it just is like such a, um, an esoteric word that I've, I like never come across it anywhere else
1: it's it's something like i feel you know i say i feel like i've heard it before i might have heard it early earlier in the book and i'm only it now because i think he used it like three times in this little chunk which is yeah, like okay maybe it we should bring this back up but yeah it does seem to be like a kind of like personification of an emotion i guess like as you know i, I got it. it's a little bit like i've got a you know I, i've got the vapors kind yes. of thing
2: but. um yeah it's right it's like a um It gives you the the willies.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, more than that. Um, So, at an unknown time period, whether this is old or current, involves Hal waiting in the office while listening in on CT. I think I got a little mixed up on the chronology. That ends up not being an important note. Listening in on CT, talking to a seven-year-old girl student that he promptly upsets with the standard, we here at Enfield will break you down and build you back up only with the girl's skull which she begins crying and he nervously apologizes and weirdly offers a non-creepy lap to climb on for comfort. Avril comes out and offers Hal an apple, long piece about how the family has this weird roulette of politeness, you know, have an apple. Oh, but it's your only lunch. Oh, I'm quite full. Please eat. You're hungry. Mm -hmm. Kind of like an emotional guilt chicken who's going to acquiesce first. Mm -hmm.
2: Oh, I just looked it up. Fantod's first use, uh, 1839.
1: Okay, I actually would have thought older than that. Yeah. But, hmm. Interesting. Uh, the girl's name is Tina Echt, which is now rivaling Trolsch for most repulsive last names on canvas. Haltez Alvril, CT did that thing about taking skulls apart and she yelled bloody murder. Uh, Avril laps, but pre mourns the girl. Her father has been trying to get her in the academy since she was five, says Charles will have her go pro before she gets her period, and she'll look like a burnt out world-weary lump of coal by the time she's 14. CT and X both awkwardly stand and shake hands. The height differential makes it appear that he is masturbating, and she is zig-heiling. Uh, yeah, I think I I went over some of the notes, but I do I do love Tabitha's just kind of meltdown of like making this girl cry and being like I am sorry to upset you. Would you like a non judgmental sit on my lap to uh, feel better?
2: And he also talks about how he's doing the he's like I don't want to talk down to you, even a child. So I'm giving you the regular speech that I would give anyone. But obviously that was a miscalculation, and I have distressed you. Like he just mm. has this like constant internal monologue that he like foists on other people that's all of his uncomfortable thoughts
1: i mean that is one of my favorite like just humorous things in when something gets met when you can't uh when you mess up so badly and you really can't fix it and only make it more awkward um I have a dumb little story I'll share here. Uh, I had an ex-girlfriend who had a lot of health problems, and she and I were hanging out in the hospital after she had a surgery, and we're sitting in her bed watching like music videos on her laptop. So I bring up uh, It's All Coming Back to Me, which is originally a Celine Dion song, but this was done by Meatloaf. And what was it? Oh yeah. And I was trying like, cause she and I had broken up, gotten back together. So I figured like, you know, this is a song about falling in love again with somebody who's been gone for a long time. We put on the video and it's just meatloaf in like a lonely house and like a ghost appears like, Oh, this is his dead wife that he's missing. Probably not that. And I look over my girlfriend and she's just bawling. Like I'm going to die and oh, you're going to no. love somebody else. <laughs> there was, yeah, I felt so terrible, but it was so goddamn funny. <laughs> Yeah. And, and then it all worked out. We broke up and we both found other people and she's still alive as far as I know. But Nice. Yeah.
2: That's it, a happy ending.
1: It is a happy ending. Um, <laughs> earlier at the dentist, Hal got the Novocaine for his tooth to come out. Notes that despite always being masked, the dentist Zegarelli has notoriously horrible breath to the extent that Enfield students with his insurance teach each other how to breathe in sync with him so you're never directly inhaling his throat funk. All right, we're rounding the edge on the end here. Uh, Boys in the waiting room are uncertain which Tavis they'll be dealing with. Yeah, we talk about, like, the two-sidedness of him, which I'm looking forward to seeing, like, the furious side, because there's the standard frenzied anxiety dressed as a man, but also a darker side. Pemulus has been in that office so many times that it's impossible to vacuum his footprints out of the floor, and he's seen the bad side. When Tavis loses composure or worries his authority is being threatened, Hal's openly adjustable uncle becomes a different man, one not to be fucked with. He definitely, DFW likes that line. He uses one not to be fucked with a lot. Yeah. Uh, He becomes quiet, and as opposed to his typical permanent receding, he grows and swells like a pufferfish and looms in presence, leaving many kids leaving his office white and shaking. Uh, Lateral Alice Moore gets buzzed to let them in, which is another negative sign as opposed to him opening the door himself. Inside, the dreaded Dolores Rusk is in there. Next to her is poor Otis Lord, monitor still stuck on his head, eyes holes cut into it for his convenience. Pemulus settles his feet into their well-worn imprint. Lastly, a urinologist, presumably there to drug test them. I really hope poor Otis ends up wearing that monitor for the rest of the book. I I love that little detail.
2: And it's, again, it's like so surreal, right? Like, that doesn't seem like how that would work medically.
1: (laughs) Right, like they could probably cut this off, but yeah. Like <laughs> um, I think
2: there, there's a couple of details too in here that that I think we kind of glossed over that, like that were really fascinating, like the kind of how constantly take like checking in with his body feels like such an athlete thing, right? Like he's mm-hmm. like constantly making sure that one side of his face isn't gigantic and swollen after being at the dentist, mm-hmm. and then in the flashback to three months earlier, his ankle was hurt and he's like pacing the room and like flexing his ankle with every step to see like how much does it hurt in what positions does it hurt and Mm. and that's like so interesting because it's like that's the kind of thing like an athlete does to check in with like am I okay am I performing but it's also like a how thing and that he these are the kinds of things that he does anyway like he's like kind of a, a compulsive person
1: Right. He's somebody who's uh he seems very concerned about the space he is taking up and mm-hmm. where he is at all times. Yeah. Which is obvious is very important as when we first meet him in the very beginning of the book, which of course we know is the last thing chronologically, mm-hmm. pretty much inside himself is the only thing he's comfortable with, like the outside being complete. I really want to know what happens with Hal. And I unfortunately have had it kind of spoiled for me that it's not clear cut. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. That, that part's keeping me going.
2: Yeah, I don't want to say too much. Okay. Um, but like, yeah, the, I mean, Hal is just like so fascinating. I think I, like every character is, I think.
1: Yeah, this one, for me, I got so used to uh, spending time with Gately and I really wasn't that entrenched with the Enfield kids. Right.
2: You're but- saying you don't love the tennis stuff.
1: Really no, like, and that's again another thing. I'm so really annoyed that we don't really get what happens here for a while because this is the first time. Like, oh, I w-, like you know, there's a chance for the arc to be disrupted. Like, you know, Penulus sent home. I want to know what the fallout is going to be from all this, and it looks like I'll have to wait a while. But
2: yeah, right, because then, then after the scene, they go into the the office and they kind of notice who's around, and then we cut back to the um the the meeting. Just before dawn in the southwestern u s of like mm. American and Canadian uh, intelligence agents
1: right, which we keep i've I've asked people before, and they've given me a eh, kind of thing. I was wondering if this marathon steeply in Tucson was a little bit of like a waiting for Godot thing where they're just they're always there, they're just having a conversation, but like it's like they're waiting for something that never really happens
2: i think I think more happens. Okay. I don't like. I don't think the eventual I, in my memory, because the, the end, like I think a lot, kind of like it's like a kind of crescendos in a uh-huh. lot of ways in the in the writing style and like some of the action. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think that this particular plot thread escalates. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: Like, right. I, only, it's funny, I only realize now, like, chronologically, this is happening in May before the events we were just at, which was taking place in November, mm-hmm. which only now really makes me realize, I'm I'm not entirely sure of, like, the chronology of the Meraith and Steeply stuff. I don't know if yeah. I've been watching that in order or where it was happening vis-a-vis all the other things yeah. that in the novel. So That's a
2: good question.
1: Yeah. Um, and then there was
2: there's something else about oh and also it takes a long time to like put together what years happen in what order right because all the years are sponsored names
1: right yeah when they when they drop the chronological list where uh, that's actually where you find out the stuff you read at the beginning chronologically happens at the end Mm -hmm. where you see year nine is the year of glad and we've only seen that a few times almost all of this taking place in the uh you're the depend adult undergarment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But anyway, so we can wrap it up here in the last few pages. This is Marathan Steeply. Steeply is still discussing the temptation paradox and saying it's not purely a US thing. Brings up the Oriental myth of a woman covered in blonde body hair, despite Oriental's general lack of body hair. Just going to let that sentence exist. Uh, that seduces men, though they're well aware of the myth and risk anyway, but can't resist. They end up dead from an overload of pleasure. AFR believes Maraith is a triple agent pretending, pretending to betray his nation for his wife. Steeply believes Maraith's superiors, M. Fortier, don't know he is there. Steeply has not given this bit of information to his superiors. Moraith believes Steeply holds it back because of a USA thrill of not being subservient to superiors. M. Fortier did not know that Maraith had chosen his wife, Getroud, over his country, and if he did, he would have driven a railroad spike through the eyes of both Moraiths. Steepley's accent is terrible, but Maraith isn't sure if that's genuine or a put-on to throw him off balance. Steepley brings up again the Odalisque de Saint-Therese, last seen battling the Medusa and turning their audience to stone in JOI's film, again making the point of a human fear of being overpleasured to death. Moraith concludes that Stapley's littering with non-biodegradable cigarette filters has to do with a U.S. irony and contempt for oneself. Moraith offers Steepley to sit to relieve the pain from the high heels, Steeply declines, saying that with the skirt, you don't want anything to crawl up and explore. And that is the end of my notes. But uh, yeah, I I love this constant, like these two guys, nobody, like... Obviously, two spies, they don't know who's doing what. They're constantly sizing each other up while at the same time giving us the reader. We don't even know their primary motivations either. Mm. Everything is being double, triple, quadruple guessed.
2: And it, it kind of feels like a real like on-point satire of like military intelligence right Mm -hmm. like and because like the ultimately the I mean like there's so much of about the novel in general that's so prescient right like Mm -hmm. just the seeing through there's this form of entertainment that uh that is absolutely it's um you know takes away all of your mental faculties and makes you physically immobile more or less and like immediately the united states idea is to use it as a weapon of war mm-hmm. and where we've got this like these um sponsored years and I'm sure this has been brought up already because we're like in the middle of the book but those the filters that make you look good for video calls Mm. that that are that like video call video calls were invented and became the norm and then these filters became the norm because everyone hated how they looked on video Mm. that is literally true now like it's so that my friend um Sarah Brin who's a a curator is the first person who like when when like Instagram filters became popular she was just Mm. like, oh yeah this is infinite jest and <laughs> like I don't know it's just there's so much that's like so um like on the not on the nose um astute and 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 forecasting, even though that you know you get these like kind of like clunky racial descriptors mm-hmm. um uh, it and is- it also looking back twenty five years makes it hard to parse like when these two kind of like beds are having this discussion in the in the desert the description of like this asian mythology like they're being kind of racist mm-hmm. in a way that like has become less has become blurrier with like some of the other racial descriptors in the book right like uh, i think this is on purpose but some of the other stuff is yeah. like a little clunky by accident
1: right and i think that's another example right there of the not using a strict perspective, but, like, the, all of the writing in that chunk being colored by both their perspectives.
2: Right, right. Like, you... This is, like... We're hearing kind of uh echoes of these spies' internal monologues, mm. even though it's not in the first person as either one of them.
1: Yeah. I'm the yeah. first who has with them. You mentioned the prescience thing. I've been... uh I, I was a little shitty about the prescience just because there's so... Uh, unfortunately, there are like big David Wall- Wallace fans who like literally want to throw everything. Like it's just like Infinite Jest. Yeah yeah, in a lot yeah, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in like a chapter or two ago, where pretty much he describes Netflix, with, like the only detail he gets wrong is his version of like streaming media would be like if NBC, CBS, and ABC failed, and then they came up with Netflix. That's the yes. only thing he got wrong. Everything else is like exactly what he got.
2: Right, which is that Netflix came into existence and is crowding out the other stuff. In the right. it's like the opposite chronology and yeah. causality. Yeah, but he, I mean, he, clearly smart and thoughtful. There's like n- not a lot about the kind of like the and even the idea of like an American, uh, an American disgust for like the environment. Mm-hmm. In, in the throwing the mm-hmm. cigarettes off the the canyon, it's just like, yeah, this is all like pretty neatly observed, and not in a way that like he got it all right. Like when people are like, "The Simpsons got it," and it's like, yeah, yeah, because yeah. well, they were talking about a thing in 1997 that's still happening, and you just forgot the original thing, <laughs> and that's yeah. kind of what some of this is. But like some of the the futurist stuff is like, damn, that's that's not bad.
1: Yeah, no, some of he he definitely had his finger on the. Uh... On the pulse a little bit there, but so Josh, I uh, believe that is our episode. Thank you very much for doing this. I uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, um, real quick, I actually messed up in the beginning. Uh, what are you working on? Where can we find you? Social media, that whole thing. Sure. Um,
2: I'm at Josh Gondelman on Twitter and Instagram. I'm uh, I'm working on Jesus and marrow season two. We've got um, we're gonna go. Up to right around the election, uh, Sundays and Thursdays at 11 on Showtime. We're we're back uh, after a, li- a quick two-week break. Um, and I have a podcast called Make My Day. It's a game show. It's a one-on-one game show. So the only contestant always wins. Big um, <laughs> you. And I have a book out called Nice Try. It's an essay collection.
1: Awesome. Okay. I'll make sure we put all that in the description. Thank you. Uh, Josh, thank you very much for doing this. There's Thanks for so having me. Yeah, this is great. I'm going to stop recording now, but you and I can still talk for a second. Terrific.
0: Cool.